Would you take your Bible, please, <clears throat> and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. A couple of years ago, scientists and researchers at the University of Washington did a unique study of household chemicals. They uh, studied actually 25 popular products that gave off a particular scent or smell. And here's what they alarmingly discovered. There was a total of 133 chemicals that were emitted. And each one of these products had at least one toxin. They were actually uh, labeled ethanol in all of them. But most of the chemicals were not mentioned or on the label. As a matter of fact, 11 of these products gave off a carcinogen. There are some toxins in our world that we must be aware of. But most dangerously are toxins in our spiritual life that we inhale and exhale into the world. We produce either a fragrance of joy and life or an aroma of death. When Paul the Apostle confronted the Corinthian church because of their carnality, they were a church that frankly had the label spiritual, but inside their contents could be marked carnal. And so he sent a stinging, challenging letter to them called 1 Corinthians. They didn't like it. Who likes to be rebuked? And so uh, they began to uh, attack Paul, and they criticized him for lying, for being weak in his presence, being a poor speaker, and other things. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians. Now, the issue with this is that Paul was aware of the toxicity of this church. And when he wrote this letter, he was in Troas, which was four miles uh, east of the ancient city of Troy. You remember the Trojan horse. And everything was going great, except he was blessed in Troas, but he was stressed about Corinth. He sent his brother in Christ, Titus, to check them out, to find out if they truly had repented, if they truly were sorry about the things they said. And Paul is in a state of limbo when he is writing at one point. Would you take your Bible or your computer or your memory and let's stand to honor the reading of God's inspired word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. Now, Paul said, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when the door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph 
in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You may be seated. What Paul could have experienced as a terrible defeat became a launching pad for victory. But God is always the answer. He always has the last word. And Paul speaks of that in this very same passage. In our series entitled, Whatever, we have been talking about some absolute, radically true things that must take place if we're to go on with the Lord. And today the theme is, whatever turns defeat into victory, trust God for it. Now, the word also says in 1 John 5, 4, whatever, now notice that word, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So let's talk about how to trust God in any form of defeat or attack or difficulty, and particularly in times of disappointment. You've heard of aromatherapy. I was in Walmart the other day. Yes, I do go to Walmart. And I saw a label on a little product that said, Good Vibes, Aromatherapy. And it advertised how to find peace through this product. Uh, Don't think so. But aromatheology is what Paul is talking about here in this passage. Now, we all have, first of all, the aroma of outstanding characteristics. That sense that we give off, that impression and literally that scent, S-C-E-N-T. In Philippians 4.2, Paul is dealing with another problem in another church, and he says in Philippians 4.2, I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. These two ladies, can you imagine receiving an inspired letter from the Apostle Paul and you get called out by name in that letter? He's naming names. Euodia meant in her name a sweet fragrance. And Syntyche meant blessed and fortunate. Blessed. But Euodia had a pungent personality rather than being a sweet fragrance. And Syntyche was uh, more of a blister on the body of Christ than a blessing. In essence, there was this body odor in the body of Christ in Philippi, even the greatest of churches, perhaps, in that early day. There is something that we give off, in a sense, when we're with people. When Elisha was passing through a village... The Shunammite woman said, I perceive that this is a holy man of God who is passing by us continually. That's in 2 Kings 4.9. He preached no sermon, taught no class, or worked no miracle. And yet there was this sense of holiness about this man of God. A, a sense not of 
oddness but godliness, he was different than other people who passed by. Do people sense that in you? Every one of us are advertising Jesus in one way or another. I think of John and James, James and John, you know, the two brothers who were apostles of Jesus. And we think of John from, <coughs> excuse me, the vantage point of about 90 A.D. And he writes in John, maybe the gospel a little earlier, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved was his description, self of himself. But John, in the early days, was really sort of a punk. He and James were labeled by Jesus as sons of thunder, literally meaning soon angry ones. In Luke 9, 55, whoa, why would they be called that? Because they had a hair-trigger temper and prejudice. And so when they were going through Samaria, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans and vice versa, and they were all prejudiced about each other, they wanted to nuke those suckers because they resisted Jesus. The Bible says they did not receive Jesus, and so they wanted to call down fire from heaven and take them out. And Jesus challenged them. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. That impression, that sense that came forth from these men. There's an interesting passage in Jeremiah 48, verse 11. And I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. Uh, I'll have a number of scriptures as usual. But we talked about wine and the wedding of Cana a few weeks ago. And listen to this. God said in Jeremiah, Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like wine on its dregs, and he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor, and his aroma has not changed. In other words, there had to be an emptying and uh, moving the wine from vessel to vessel so it would not be stale and stink. But the aroma and even the flavor of this so-called wine as a symbol of the people of Moab was something odious to God. Because there has to be a continual emptying and breaking in our lives. We don't like to hear that. We like to think, okay, if, if I have this uh, scent, this outstanding characteristic that comes forth, uh, I'll just do my better to smell nice. And you become like the middle school boys that I went to school with. Now, there may be many testimonies even here today. Some of you men who went to middle school. But they didn't like taking showers, and so I knew a lot of boys who would just douse themselves in cologne like Jade East. <laughs> Brute. English leather and Old Spice, and they would have this aroma of sweat and cologne. It was repulsive even to me. 
But you can't just say, I'm going to smell nice. I'm going to cover up all those bad habits that come forth for me. But you have to be emptied over a period of time, dying to self. There has to be a time of brokenness. And I'll talk about that next week. Of emptying the vessel again and again. To manifest, as Paul said, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. That's what we want. We want people to sense Jesus wherever we go and whatever we do. But secondly, here's the second big idea. We can emit the pungent stench of overwhelming disappointment. Now, I'm, I'm saying disappointment because this is where Paul was at this point. You see that in verses 12 and 13. He said, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. Now, God gives us open doors. And he said a door was open for preaching the gospel. It was the right opportunity at the right time to give the right message in the right way and even with the right power because it was in Christ, he said. And everything was opened. It was a wonderful time of ministry for Paul. Look at with me 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. Or just listen. Uh, Paul, Paul discovered that when he was in Ephesus, the same situation that he discovered when he was in Troas. He said, a wide door for effective service opened for me, but there are many adversaries. Not only did he have conflicts without, but fears within. And he said, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I am. Now realize, he has to remind them again, he is doing the Lord's work. But Timothy could have been uh, rejected by them. And we know that he was probably a more fragile personality, and it could have deeply hurt him and his ministry. But then we are disappointed when there are closed doors of fellowship. Paul was concerned that they not close the door in Corinth to Timothy as they had to him. You know, one of the problems is we, we long for fellowship. We are hardwired for relationships. We need our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Once you're redeemed, you get new relatives. You're, you're stuck with them. We're in the body of Christ. And that's why Euodia and Syntyche need to live in harmony in the Lord. But you see, Paul was being accused of not being integral. And it cut him to the core. When he finally met with Titus, something really happened. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and 6, let me read this to you. When he came... He finally did meet up with Titus. He said in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we are afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. 
but God who comforts the depressed. I love this translation. This is one of the reasons I love the New American. God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Many of us go in and out of depression. And yet the Bible 2,000 years ago gives us the secret here. God comforts the depressed. But we need relationships with Titus and Timothy and Corinthians. But here's another truth. We are disappointed when we are deprived of what we desired. Disappointment comes from unrealistic, unmet expectations. We expect this and we get this. Our struggle is that sometimes they are unattainable because they're unrealistic. We tend to forget that all are sinners and forgetters. People forget. I've been through four years of deep disappointments. Many of you know more about my history than others might. When time and time again, I expected something happened, but it didn't. And the Lord seemed to say to me again and again, you have an unrealistic expectation of people. One Christian writer wrote this, do you load paradise-like expectations into fallen world moments? And I would say yes. But disappointments, now get this, are God's camouflaged appointments. A phrase that the Lord brought into my mind not long ago is, God who brought me through will bring me through. He brought me to a situation. He will bring me through it for his glory. To and through. Because there are circumstances that are signposts pointing to the fact we have to depend on the Lord. Our eyes are on him. People are not your personal Messiah. People will let you down. Everybody eventually will be hurt by somebody. I'm not being negative here. I'm being very realistic and letting you know your expectations have to be on the Lord Jesus and not on others. He is constantly teaching us to wait patiently and rest in the Lord. Waiting patiently for God to reveal what he truly wants for us. Someone defined patience as you needing to idle your motor while you feel like stripping your gears. <laughs> Wait patiently on the Lord. A great man of God learned this. 2 Corinthians 2.9, God said, I will make all my mountains into a road and my highways will be raised up. Why would God say that? Because we face obstacles of mountains that God says, listen, I'm going to use that mountain as a stepping stone and not a stumbling block. And I'm even going to build up a road for you to go through the mountains or over the mountains or around the mountains. The great man of God called the father of modern missions, a man named William Carey, had to discover this. William Carey finally left the cobbler's shop 
in the 1700s, and they felt that God was broadening the tent of missions and the Great Commission beyond America and England. He was met with stiff uh, resistance of those who, who even spoke out in a meeting and said, when God's ready to save the heathen, he'll do it without you or me. And finally booked passage on a ship to go to India. And as he got on the ship, they threw him off. They said they denied passage on that ship. And there was more waiting and wondering. But he wrote these powerful words during that time of waiting. However mysterious the leadings of providence are, I have no doubt but that they are superintended by an infinitely wise God. Amen. But here's the third truth. We can emit the fragrant scent of overcoming triumph. This is why I love that, but God. But God who comforts the depressed. But God who leads us in his triumph, always, in every place. Underline those words. God works in the gaps. You know what I mean by that? I don't know if really Paul was cleared for departure when he left Troas, but he just packed up, got up, and left a very fruitful ministry field and went all the way over to Europe to Macedonia, where he still had problems, as we saw a moment ago. But God was working in that gap time from when he wanted to give it up and quit and walk away to when all of a sudden he got to Macedonia and he was realizing that God was leading him and giving him victory. Let me share with you some key things about the sweet smell. It is the sweet smell of a thankful heart. Thanks be to God. Now, the scriptures are filled with the idea of giving thanks. In Philippians 4.8, Paul was grateful for a gift that Epaphroditus brought to him that he called a fragrant aroma. God gives us things and blessings that are a fragrant aroma of Christ. When Mary discovered the wonderful truth of Jesus raising her brother Lazarus from the dead, when they were all together in her home with Mary, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Jesus and the apostles, in John 12, 3, the Bible says that she broke an expensive bottle of perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus. And it says in John 12, 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But you see, that, that perfume... That fragrance was of her gratitude that Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. That he was, what he said, the resurrection and the life. That he comes when we call. He weeps when we are in sorrow. He cares when we don't know what to do. And she gave thanks and that perfume filled the place. You realize that when you begin to have an attitude of gratitude, giving thanks internally and then finally externally, that that fragrant scent fills the room everywhere you are. 
That's why the Bible says that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise on a daily basis. Because it is a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. I'm reading from Hebrews uh, 13, 15. It's one of my absolute favorite verses about thanksgiving and praise. And by the way, they're interchangeable. Particularly, we give thanks for what God has done in his activity and praise for what he is and does in his attributes. But they are interwoven together, thanksgiving and praise, because we're worshiping this great God. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Praise you, Lord. Thank you for in your name being Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Nisi, Jesus, I am that I am, you said, Lord. I praise you and I give thanks that you revealed your name to me. In 2 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15. Paul said, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. That's what happened when, when Lazarus was raised from the dead. People began to see this miracle and the message of the miracle. Jesus is the Messiah and the resurrected one and the life. And when God's grace enables us, and by the way, you can't give thanks and praise without his grace. That wonderful fragrance abounds to many. It's contagious. But also, and, and I really want to camp out on this, it is the sweet smell of a joyful celebration because God leads us in a triumph. Now, the word for triumph was a word that meant a victory march in Rome by the conquering Roman general. When he had killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers, captured enemy territory, he would be proclaimed uh, he was a rock star beyond rock stars. And the Senate would proclaim a triumph. And so he would lead his army into the city of Rome. And behind them were the captive soldiers being led to the Colosseum. The Roman general had his face tinted red in honor of the god Jupiter, whom he was to praise and worship in his temple later on. He carried a scepter with an eagle at the top. He was clothed in a purple toga, and he was riding in a golden chariot. The historian Appian commented about uh, General Pompey when he won a victory in 61 BC, that he was riding in two carriages laden with gold, followed by the captives. And the captive general was chained to the chariot of the victorious general. 
And many of them were chained as well who were captives. But Appian also noticed that many of those enemy prisoners were not even bound because, as he put it, resistance was futile. Now, what do we learn about this? We celebrate our submission to Christ. We are enemies who become soldiers. We willingly allow Jesus to lead. We are chained to his chariot. What a shame it is to the world. Why would you give up your ego to the glory of God? Because when we win, it's because he has won through us. Let me tell you about that general in that chariot. First of all, as he was riding, he was the one who was in charge. Not the captives, but the general. Wherever he leads, we go. Whatever he commands, we do. General Jesus is in charge of this march. And then the route of the triumph was laid out in advance and picked and fixed. As a matter of fact, everywhere they went, there was the fragrance of thousands of flowers and garlands all over the city. Incense was being burned on every street, and that enormous perfume was permeating the city of Rome. And wherever they went in that route, there were cheers of victory. We don't decide where we're going to go. We do not say, my long-range plan is. My master plan, though, has to be under his mastership, his leadership, lordship. Third thing is, the general decides the judgment of those who have been captive. He decides what's going to happen to them. You know, quite honestly, there are times I'd like to drag a few people behind a chariot. <laughs> I've got some names. I bet you do too. But Jesus said, no, vengeance is mine. I will deal with it, says the Lord. And then the general's young children rode in the chariot with him. They rode behind him, proud of their dad. Because, you see, victory overlapped and overflowed into the family. And that's what happens when we are led by Christ. Our children grow to love Jesus more and respect us more as, we, as they follow our obedience to the Heavenly Father. A slave rode in the chariot also, holding over the general's head a crown of gold. Every day we crown Jesus as Lord as his servants. And then the Roman infantry had laurels on their spears, and as they went along, they would shout, triumph, 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 and they would sing songs of praise about the general. Man, what a parade. But then we celebrate Christ's ascension as well. We are losers who become winners. Now, the ascension is when Jesus lifted off from the Mount of Olives to go back into heaven. Just read Acts 1, and you'll see it. It is the fulfillment in this triumph that Paul talks about of Jesus' ascension and his delegation of power and authority to us. Long before, in Psalm 68, 18, 
The word says, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious. So that's a, a prophecy of what Jesus did in the ascension. The Bible says he received gifts. But then that same passage is referred to in Ephesians 4.8. But it says this, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received, notice this, you have received gifts among men. And you have given gifts to men. Now, he received gifts and he gave gifts. Old Testament, New Testament. Is that a contradiction? No, it's a complementing truth. The same one who is the receiver is the giver. And because the Lord Jesus received the applause of heaven, the approval of his heavenly Father, the worship of angels and now apostles ascending back into heaven in a cloud of glory, he has now given gifts to the body of Christ. And Paul goes on to describe them as the gifted ministers, apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, evangelists, to bless the body of Christ. But the ascension is, is more than that. It was Jesus' final victory, celebration over evil and demonic forces. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Jesus, like the Roman soldiers, disarmed the demons. He publicly displayed their humiliation. They tried to keep him from going back to heaven, but he threw them off, literally. That's the word picture in the original language. He threw them off of himself, and he ascended all the way into the presence of the Heavenly Father. And he has delegated our identity and authority in him against them. And because Jesus has won that victory, we stand not as losers, but as winners over evil. Let me hurry on here. I know the time is getting away from us. It is also the sweet smell of faithful abiding. We rest and nest in the Lord. We trust in Him to produce the fragrance of His knowledge of Christ in and through us. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1959, the amazing film Ben-Hur hit the theaters. Before computer generation, it had that uh, epic 12-minute long chariot race. They had 78 horses that had been trained for these four-horse chariots. 8,000 extras, part of the action. And in that arena, Ben-Hur, the Jew, had become a slave and then released uh, races against Masada, Masala, who was the Roman commander. And you know who wins. But Heston, Charlton Heston, who played Ben-Hur, did his own stunts, except for one leaping over uh, a broken down chariot. He was trained by the leading stuntman of the day, Yakima Kanut. 
But because this was real action, this was not computer generated. Long before that, they were racing at breakneck speed. And finally, Charlton came to the director and he said, how am I supposed to win this race at these speeds? And the director said, listen, you stay in the chariot and I'll make sure you win the race. That's what Jesus says. Stay chained to my chariot. Stay riding and abiding in me, and I will help you to overcome the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory, even our faith. And it is faith that abides in Christ and looks to him for the victory. Amen. But one last thing. It is the sweet smell of eternal life. In verse 15, the soldiers who were defeated, when they smelled the incense, they could only smell death was just around the corner. When you hear the gospel, you either are hardened or softened. There is no neutrality with Christ. When you hear this message or any other message or a witness or you watch Franklin Graham on TV or any witness at all, you are either drawn to Christ or you become resistant to Christ. You want to know more or you want to hear no more. Which is it today? And the scent of Christ, the fragrance of Jesus, ought to draw you to himself. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. As you hear this message, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He died for you personally. You were on his mind and on his heart. He rose from the dead to seal the deal and proclaim that he was Lord, Victor, and God. But he wants to come into your heart. And so right now, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer to trust him as your Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, just pray this in your heart to him. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for hardening my heart at times. I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross for my sins. That you rose from the dead as Lord and God. I turn from my sins right now. I choose for you to run my life as Lord. I believe and trust in you alone for eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Now we're going to sing one final song. Could we make this just short, please? Let's stand. If you made that commitment, you prayed that prayer a moment ago, I want you to speak to one of the encourager counselors who are going to come right now and stand out at the front. You can come right now if you want to. The best time is now. Now is the day of salvation, the Word says. Or come to them after the service. May God bless you.